0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to today's People, Places, Planet podcast. This is a special edition and I'm your guest host, Linda Bregan. I am a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School. And with me is Kyle Blazinski, a law and economics student at Vanderbilt Law School, who you're going to hear from momentarily. But thanks for being here, Kyle.
1: Hi, Professor Bregan. Thanks for having me.
0: Today, we're extremely fortunate to have Harvard professor Cass Sunstein to discuss with us his article entitled Arbitrariness Review and Climate Change, which was published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. We're also delighted to have Vanderbilt professor Kit Biscusi here, who will be leading the dialogue with Professor Sunstein. And as appropriate, Kyle and I may chime in with some questions. Before I introduce our esteemed guest, I wanted to briefly frame up and contextualize the discussion today. This podcast is actually in conjunction with the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, which is a joint project and publication of ELI and Vanderbilt Law School. LPAR is published as the August issue of ELI's Environmental Law Reporter News and Analysis every year. And in it, we highlight in shortened form a handful of articles from the legal literature published in the prior year with commentaries from practitioners and policymakers. The articles that we publish are selected in large part by students in the LPAR class at Vanderbilt Law School who also edit the articles and commentaries. Our goal with LPAR, Part, is to bring academic ideas to practitioners and policymakers. As many of us know, some of the smartest people in our law school classes became law professors and they write these brilliant law review articles that nobody has time to read except other law professors. And so we wanted to bring proposals from the academy to practitioners and policymakers and vet their ideas. And then lastly, but also important is that Elper seeks to incentivize or recognize law professors who write articles that not only advance legal theory, but also offer policy-relevant conclusions. And so with that, I want to hand it over to Kyle, who's really hit the ground running this year as the Editor-in-Chief of LPAR, to tell us more about how the article by Professor Sunstein that we're going to discuss in a few minutes was selected by LPAR. Kyle?
1: Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to share a brief overview of our selection process for LPAR. We consider most of the environmental articles published in the prior year in both the top law reviews and environmental law journals published in the United States. What we're really looking for are articles that address an issue of major importance to environmental quality and that offer a law or policy-relevant proposal, articles that satisfy those two threshold criteria and then get evaluated using LPAR's four evaluation criteria, persuasiveness, impact, creativity, and feasibility. We ultimately identify what we call our top 20 articles through extensive class discussion with both the student editors and our professors based on those criteria. This year, Professor Sunstein's article is one of the five selected for recognition. And with that, I'd like to provide just a brief overview of the article to help frame the discussion that's to come, and I'll use as much of the quoted language from Professor Sunstein's article as possible to really make sure I'm capturing it accurately. Professor Sunstein's article explores the relationship between judicial review of agency action and the social cost of carbon. and pays particular attention to what is called arbitrariness review. Now, <laughs> there are a lot of concepts packed into that description that I think we can use some help parsing them out. <laughs> so I'll try to do my best here. Let's start with the social cost of carbon or greenhouse gas emissions, which attempts to quantify and monetize the harm caused by a ton of carbon emissions. Professor Sunstein calls the social cost of carbon the linchpin of national regulatory policy because it helps determine the stringency of a large number of regulations from diverse agencies. It also sends an international signal and is likely to have international residents influencing the judgments of other nations. Given its importance, it's not surprising that the numbers have been challenged in the court under the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. And also, by way of background, Professor Sunstein explains that in these cases, the minimal requirements of arbitrariness review are that agencies must offer detailed explanations and respond to counterarguments demonstrate that their factual judgments are consistent with a reasonable reading of the science and the economics, and show that they have not made some kind of egregious error. Also, insofar as their judgments involve policy and morality, as well as fact, as is clearly the case with respect to equity, for example, as he explains, agencies must articulate those judgments and demonstrate that they are reasonable and consistent with statute. With all the key concepts explained, let's turn to Professor Sunstein's views on establishing a social cost department that will withstand arbitrariness review. Specifically, he posits the following. First, a decision to use the global number as opposed to the domestic number would be straightforward to defend against an arbitrariness challenge. As an aside, the article explains that the domestic number refers to the damage of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States alone. A global number refers to the damage of greenhouse gas emissions throughout the entire world. Second, he contends that a decision to use a low discount rate, such as 2%, would be straightforward to defend against an arbitrariness challenge. A decision to use a very low discount rate, such as 1%, or a high discount rate, such as 7%, would be exceedingly difficult to defend against an arbitrariness challenge. And just to clarify what that means, The discount rate refers to the rate at which future benefits and costs, say costs of 2100, are discounted to the present value. And Professor Sunstein further offers for newcomers to the issue of discounting with 3% discount rate, future benefits in the form, for example, of climate related damage averted in 2075 will be far higher than they would be with a 5% discount rate and significantly lower than they would be with a 1% discount rate. And his third proposition, a wide range of decisions involving, for example, climate sensitivity and the damage function, raise difficult questions in science and economics. They should be straightforward to defend against an arbitrariness challenge, he says, but only if they fall from a reason justification. Next, as his fourth proposition, he maintains that approaches that take account of equity should be defensible against an arbitrariness challenge. That should be a refusal to adopt such approaches. But here again, reason justification is required. Fifth, and finally, he concludes that a decision to back out a social cost of carbon from some specific target would be challenging to defend against an arbitrariness challenge. And (laughs) I know that's a lot of information to digest, but I hope it provides some important background information and makes the very interesting discussion that I'm sure is to come a little easier to follow. But with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Professor Bregan.
0: Thank you, Kyle. Well, now that we've provided some context for the discussion, let me introduce our guest. Cass Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard. He is the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. Cass served as the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and is the author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including the best-selling book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health. Wealth and Happiness with Richard Thaler. We are also fortunate to have Professor W. Kipp Viscuzzi with us today, who is Vanderbilt's first university distinguished professor with tenured appointments in the Department of Economics, the Owen Graduate School of Management, and the Law School. Before joining the Vanderbilt faculty, Professor Viscuzi was the Kogan Professor of Law and Economics at Harvard, so he and Casco way back. Kemp is an award-winning author of more than 30 books and nearly 400 articles, most of which address various aspects of health and safety risks, and he is widely regarded as one of the world's leading authorities on cost-benefit the analysis. Both guests are special to me personally because Professor Sunstein was my Elements of Law professor at University of Chicago, my very first law school class, the very first day of law school. It was certainly an eye-opening experience and probably where I was first introduced to the concept of arbitrariness review. That will be the focus of today's conversation. And Professor Vascusi Kip is a Vanderbilt colleague and dear friend, and we have logged many miles over the years hiking in Nashville's parks. Before we jump in, and Professor Viscuzzi is going to be leading this discussion, I do want to give Professor Sunstein an opportunity to comment on whether anything has changed since he wrote this article. It was published over a year ago in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. A lot has happened since then. It is now August 2023. Cass, is there anything you want to say as a preliminary matter before we jump in?
2: Thank you for that. I don't think anything fundamental has changed, but there have been Developments in science and economics and policy. So every month we have some new science with respect to climate change. I don't think it changes any of the fundamental claims in the paper. There's work in economics. There's a Excellent book by Pindick, which I'm very impressed with, on climate change and how much we don't know that's relevant to some of the arguments in the article. Some governments, including the U.S. government, have taken new steps with respect to the social cost of carbon, but they are all within the basic domain of the article's arguments. And while I've changed my mind on a thousand and one things in the last eight months or so, I haven't changed my mind on this.
0: Well, wonderful. That is a great lead-in for me to hand it over to Professor Viscuzzi to ask a few questions. Kip?
3: Thanks, Linda. First, let me say I really enjoyed reading the article, and I think it still works today, so I don't think you have to rewrite it. I've come up with about five areas that we can talk about. I'm not sure if we can get to all of them. but Let me start off with the first one, global versus domestic, and this is sort of a softball question, given the fact that you probably expected I'd raise this issue. You're in the global camp. Do you want to briefly summarize why you think it's straightforward to be in the global camp?
2: My mainly focus for purposes of this article on what would be arbitrary for the government to do, where arbitrary is the legal term of art, not on the question, what should government do as a matter of first principles. I can speak to that as well. So the paper is at the intersection of arbitrariness review which is actually extremely exciting, notwithstanding its name. It's fundamental to the rule of law, to both accountability and reason giving, and at the climate change policy. So it's got both the administrative law angle and the regulatory policy angle. If the government chose a global number for the social cost of carbon, by which the US would take on board all of the damage done by US actors to the world, and said the reason we're using the global number is because we want to, or because the president said so even, or because we live in the world as well as in a country, that would be arbitrary and should be struck down. If the government said we're choosing the domestic number because that's what we've always done, or because the domestic number reflects the fact that America is a country and not a world. That would also be arbitrary. It's not adequate reason giving. So the defense of the global number against arbitrariness attack has to be articulated. Let me give two articulations which have been offered by administrations, which do seem to me arbitrary and would fail arbitrariness review. One is that the domestic number is extremely hard to calculate. It might be impossible to come up with anything like a point estimate, but whatever the domestic number is, it's a fraction of the global number. So the difficulty of calculating the domestic number is not an adequate justification for use of the global number, though previous administrations have tried. A second argument that's a failure for defense of the global number is to say that the U.S. has interests that aren't located in the United States. So lots of Americans who live abroad, lots of American companies that are abroad. If the economic situation in Europe tanks or goes down because of climate change, Americans are affected. So just considering domestic harms in a narrow sense fails to capture the full range of harms done to Americans. That argument is correct, but it doesn't justify the use of the global number. It justifies an inclusive domestic number, which would be, again, a fraction of the global number. So if this is intelligible, two common arguments for use of the global number, while used by smart people, would actually, in my view, fail arbitrariness review. There are two arguments that would survive arbitrariness review, and I also happen to like, but that's not the thrust of the paper. The thrust of the papers they'd survive arbitrariness review. One is that we are moral cosmopolitans in the sense that when American companies do things that hurt people in other countries, we feel responsible for that, which is not a justification for foreign aid, though I'm in favor of foreign aid. It's a justification for avoidance of foreign harm. So if Americans do something that's equivalent to a tort by causing risk, let's say, or harm in other countries to take that on board on moral grounds is not arbitrary. So it might be inconsistent with some statutes, but it's not arbitrary. It's a moral position which is honorable. The less, let's say, morally infused argument Involves reciprocity, where the argument is that we have a prisoner's dilemma here, a pretty tough one, where the nations of the globe have to agree to something. And if what they agree to is we're each going to use the domestic number, so China will use the domestic number, and India will use the domestic number, and Russia and Ukraine will use the domestic number, then we're all going to lose because we haven't solved our collective action problem. So for the US to use the global number is a step intended to produce international use of the global number, which is in America's domestic self-interest. Now, there are a bunch of things to say both about the moral cosmopolitan argument, and I'm not trying to filibuster here, I'm just trying to outline the argument, and to say in favor of the reciprocity argument. All I want to say for current purposes is that that's not arbitrary. Justification of the use of the domestic number is doable, but to avoid arbitrariness review, it's harder. I can say what I think the best argument would be for use of the domestic number. The Trump administration didn't offer it. They were poorly served by their lawyers and economists. You can get there, but it's harder than to get to non-arbitrariness through use of the global number. Just one
3: comment on the domestic number. In my work, I also add in reciprocity so that I would count that as well. So if other nations are going to be inspired by using a global social cost of carbon, that would be an argument for using it.
2: Completely good. And it's fair to say that if we consider the reciprocity benefit, let's say, it's fair to say that that's part of a domestic argument. I find that less tidy. Than to separate that argument from the purely domestic effects of climate change, but that this is about tidiness and it's not about anything that's where there are stakes.
3: Are there other policy contexts that would survive the arbitrariness test? Did they use a global number for benefits in other policy situations or is climate change unique?
2: I think it's not unique. So for depletion of the ozone layer, use of the global number, which I think was at least in the mind of the president of the United States, that is President Reagan, when he went for the Montreal Protocol, he had the domestic and the global number actually put before him to calculate the benefits of, let's say, removal of ozone depleting chemicals. In a way that took on board the global effect, I think is fair. And I believe actually the US government has done that in its regulations that reduce fluorofluorocarbons. If we had some regulation that was reducing emissions of particulate matter that hit Canada hard, to consider the effects on Canadians of American emissions of particulate matter seems to me non-arbitrary on moral cosmopolitanism grounds, even if whether or not on reciprocity grounds.
3: Discounting. And let me just start off with 7%, which I think is a ridiculous number, but you said it would flunk the arbitrariness test. Why? Because, you know, you pull up the old copy of A4 and they give a nice storyline for why they came up
2: with 7%, not entirely crazy. So what we need for a discount rate is a non-arbitrary justification. And I agree with you that back in the ancient times, 7% was a non-ridiculous number on the ground that there's some account of the opportunity cost of capital, which supports use of 7%, but not anymore. Non-arbitrariness, that a discount rate of zero or close to zero is extremely hard to defend. To go south of 1.5% is pretty hard to defend, but to go north of 4%, given the way markets are right now, I mean, what's the account by which that would be the right discount rate? And if you could come up with it, this is your business better than mine. I'm a mere lawyer who tries to learn from economists. But if you could say that the opportunity cost justifies a value of 7%, then you're golden. But That's really, really difficult, even as interest rates are rising.
3: No, I'm in the 2% or 3% camp as opposed to the 7% camp. But there are also some people suggest for policies such as climate change for the distant future, we should use even lower discount rates. So how do you feel about that? And I think there was permitted in the old edition of A4, where you could use a different discount rate for remote effects.
2: It's super interesting and fundamental. I think we need to separate various things. So let's consider the fact that if interest rates are jumping around a lot over the next hundred years, the ultimate number will be dominated just through the arithmetic by the lower numbers. So if you have a period, Weitzman, I think, was the first to do this. There's a paper by Newland-Pfizer, which also does it that if you have a, which has the same result, that if you have interest rates at 6% for a few years and 5% for a few years and 2% and 3% for a few years, the right number, the math will show you is toward 2% or 3%. So over long time periods, the low number is going to just dominate in terms of what the right number is to use on the arithmetic. There's nothing contentious about that with respect to economics or morality. It's just how it works out. So that justifies the use of a lower number than we might otherwise expect if we just eyeball how interest rates are over a period. The morally infused argument that some skeptics about discounting use is that a person born in 2080 is not worth less than a person born in 1980. And that they think discounting includes some devaluation of future persons. If discounting does entail some discounting of future persons, so much the worse for discounting. And there are some assessments of discounting which have that feature. It's not an incomprehensible intuition. Like you might discount your future self compared to your present self on any number of not irrational grounds. You might think that my future self is going to be super rich, or you might think my future self might not be at all. So I'm going to discount reflecting that possibility. But in the intergenerational case, those arguments don't work. I agree with the critics of, high discounting, and some people who report to be critics of discounting, they shouldn't discount welfare of future persons. Or if you should, it should be really low discounting of welfare of future persons. But we're not discounting welfare, we're discounting monetary equivalents. And that suggests a discount rate makes sense, given the fact that you can invest the money and see it grow. What gets a little confusing, and we're getting pretty technical here, in the intergenerational case is, are the people, let's say four generations from now, going to be helped by the wealth of this generation or the next? Or might there be an intervening generation that eats up all the money such that they're really screwed by our failure to, et cetera? That's a problem, but I think it's more interesting than it is useful that the likelihood there's an intervening generation that eats up everything, such the fact that we produce economic growth that would otherwise benefit people four and five generations out, turns out to be useless. I think that's more like an episode of Black Mirror than reality. And it's probably best to assume that our growing wealth benefits future generations as it always has. Think of your grandparents or great-grandparents. They kind of struggled compared to us, as a generation, and that that's likely to be the future. There is a complication of climate change is really, really bad. That will be confounded. But for arbitrariness review, the use of a tiny, tiny discount rate is hard to defend against arbitrariness challenge. I agree with you that something in the range of 2 or 3% is easy to defend against arbitrariness challenge.
0: Well, this is just a wonderful discussion, and Kip, we hope you'll continue with your thoughtful questions for CAS. but if I may just interject briefly, I wanted to ask our Vanderbilt Law and Economics student, Kyle, if he has any questions so far.
1: Yeah, Professor Bergen, thanks so much. I did actually have a question about the status of MB or the Office of Management and Budgets Circular A4 that I think you both referenced previously, and my understanding is that it just provides guidance to federal agencies on regulatory analysis development, From what I understand, Circular A4 is actually in the process of being updated right now. and I think it was in April of 2023 that kind of a new version was promulgated. So I was wondering if either of you could provide any insights on the status of that process or some of the proposed changes that are included in the new version of Circular A4.
2: So I'm in the Department of Homeland Security, and I'm involved in the A4 process, so I think I can't talk about it.
3: I can't talk about it either.
2: (laughs) Sorry. I guess that... (laughs) I guess that makes you
1: some of the best and simultaneously the worst people to ask that question. We'll just have to wait and see how the process develops. I want to head it back to Kip, who I think has some follow-up questions related to equity that he wants to discuss. Kip, back over to
3: you. We're going to start getting more information about regulations and justifications for regulations based on equity. First, do you see any arbitrariness issues that are likely to arise depending on the different criteria different agencies use? And second, in the light of the affirmative action decision, how far can we go in looking at that equity?
2: These are fantastic questions. Thank you. So, if there is weighting that favors people of particular skin color, given the affirmative action case, that's in real trouble, that anything that is race conscious is presumptively invalid, and the presumption of invalidity is very strong. So, insofar as equity means waiting people of color. The Supreme Court has raised very severe doubts about that. It wouldn't be that it's arbitrary, it's that it would violate the Equal Protection Clause. If there is weighting in terms of equity, that let's say says a dollar to a poor person is worth more than a dollar to a rich person, that's clearly not arbitrary. And I think right now, not to do that, faces a not crazy arbitrariness challenge, though a refusal to give more weight to a dollar in the hands of the poor than the rich would survive arbitrariness review on multiple grounds, economic grounds and administrability grounds. So the weighting would have to be race neutral. But if it's based on the fact that money for the poor is worth more than money for the rich, that should be completely fine. There's real complication here Because it might be the regulation that benefits poor people by delivering them, let's say, something that matters more to them than rich people. Let's say it's refrigerators that cost less to operate. That's better for the poor than the rich. It might be that they cost more to buy. So you're buying refrigerators, if you can afford to buy refrigerators, that are like a punch in the nose to buy, because for you, that extra money is a lot of money whereas for a rich person, it's not. So a trick for distributional weights is we, I think, have to look at both sides of the ledger to survive arbitrariness review. And there's a court of appeals decision called corrosion proof fittings that is in spirit in the same mode where it says you can't discount one and not discount the other. You can't weight one and not weight the other.
0: So this is a wonderful discussion, right? Smart, thoughtful. My question is, are today's judges, today's justices likely to share your analysis and share your views? The makeup of the judiciary is obviously changing considerably. I don't know if you're comfortable commenting on this, but curious what you think the real world application is.
2: Yeah, This is fantastic, and I'm perfectly comfortable talking about it. So we actually have not quite data, but data points. The Trump administration's use of a low social cost of carbon, let's just call it that, was struck down by a lower court. And the most sympathetic understanding of what the lower court said was the Trump administration didn't adequately defend the use of the lower number. Not that it couldn't, but it didn't. So that's a real judge. There was a real judge who struck down the Biden choice of the global number and said a bunch of things about arbitrariness and legal interpretation that were ultimately very hard, I think, to defend. It was a little bit of a blunderbuss opinion. But if an administration chose, let's say, a high social cost of carbon, I think the courts would be asking, why a low discount rate? What happened to 3 and 7%? And if 7% seems unreasonable, why not 3%? that would demand a justification. The choice of the global number is vulnerable on arbitrariness grounds. I think it should survive if it's adequately defended. But there are some other things to worry about, which my paper discusses. One is the major questions doctrine, which says, you know, the Congress has to authorize an agency to do something really big, are transformative. It could be argued that the use of the global number is really big and transformative. And I think that's not a convincing objection, but it's something the courts would listen to attentively. We also have to ask whether statutes authorize the use of the global number And there isn't a simple answer to that because we have to know what statute we're talking about. If it's a statute which is clearly focused only on domestic effects, then the global number is in trouble. One thing that might emerge, by the way, we'll see how it plays out, is there are regulatory impact analyses, which I love dearly. And then there are kind of legally determinative justifications for decisions, So an agency could say, we're choosing the global social cost of carbon and a low discount rate, and we notice that there are high benefits as a result, and the benefits justify the costs, and that's why we're proceeding. If an agency does that, call it EPA, then all of the legal challenges to a high social cost of carbon are immediately in play. They're there because it's outcome determinative, as the justification was explained. Or the EPA might say that our statute isn't a cost-benefit balancing statute. It requires us to do what's feasible, taking account of costs. And that's what we're doing. It's feasible, taking account of costs. Then it could say in the regulatory impact analysis, we have a very high social cost of carbon, look at the big benefits, but those might not be legally determinative, in which case the regulatory impact analysis is a very important document, but it doesn't provide the foundation for a legal challenge because it's not for the foundation for the agency's choice of standard. The foundation for the agency's choice of standard is feasible taking account of cost.
0: Well, thank you for your very thoughtful answer and for being here with us today. I think this is perhaps a good note to end the discussion with and for me to thank both Cass and Kip for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to record this podcast. It was a fascinating discussion. Please join us for future LPAR podcast on ELI's People, Places, Planet podcast platform. That's a lot of alliteration. Prior LPAR podcasts can be accessed on ELI's LPAR website, and please look for a list of this year's article selections in November, as well as the date for our next LPAR conference this spring, where authors of the selected articles and commenters will discuss some interesting proposals from the legal academic literature on law and policy from the prior year. And in the meantime, please check your preferred source for podcasts to listen to more People, Places, Planet podcasts and we hope you'll join us again soon thank you for tuning in to people places planet pod brought to you by the environmental law institute we would like to hear from you so please send us your questions comments and ideas to podcast at eli.org and if you're interested in learning more about our work attending one of our events reading our publications or becoming a member please visit our website at www.eli.org.